Thank you so much for being here. You can grab your Bible, turn to 1 John chapter 2. We've been making our way through 1 John. A little review. John was a disciple of Jesus. After Jesus ascended into heaven, after his resurrection, John became one of the lead pastors in the church in Jerusalem. And you can see this little timeline that I brought with me to kind of get a historical framework and context for the times that John lived. John was a pastor in Jerusalem among that church there for almost 40 years. And there was a, a persecution that began to happen to not just the Christians, but the Jewish people by the Roman Empire. A lot of people started fleeing Jerusalem and Israel. John was one of those. And so he goes to Ephesus where he becomes the lead pastor of not just one church in Ephesus, but many churches in the region of Asia Minor, which is today uh, modern Turkey. And it was in that window that he wrote his gospel, the Gospel of John, and also the epistles that we're looking at today, 1 John and also 2 John and 3 John. He eventually was put into prison on the island of Patmos, but he was allowed to return back to Ephesus where he died peacefully. Uh, If you remember from last week, he gives four main reasons for writing 1 John. The first reason is that as we read it and study it and listen to it and obey it, that our joy would be complete and full. The second reason is so that we would not sin. The third reason so that we would be able to discern what is truth and what is false. Uh, And then the last reason, according to chapter 5, that uh, at the end of reading the letter, at the end of studying the letter, that we would know with confidence that we have eternal life. And so again, because we're in chapter 2, we're rallying around his second reason for writing this letter that we may not sin. Now, uh, if you weren't here with us the last couple of weeks, I can summarize those sermons in in two sentences, which is kind of sad because I ought to just summarize this one and then we could go home. Uh, But uh, uh, God is light and in him there is no darkness and we have fellowship with God. We have relationship with God. We're sons of God. We're daughters of God. We have eternal life. We have fellowship with him. Therefore, we should walk in the light. Now, if you're like me, I walked away last week knowing I'm supposed to walk in the light. There's a lot of darkness in me. There's a lot of darkness in the world. I want to walk in the light. That's going to be hard because of all this darkness, and it's easy to feel very hopeless. Yes, we learned last week that there's forgiveness of sins. There's cleansing from sins, but it feels like an impossible task to really walk out of darkness and in to the light. Well, thankfully, in chapter 2, the first six verses, he's going to give us a way to fight deliberate sin. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Verse 3, And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word, in Him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So the question we've come to ask ourselves today is how can we, knowing that we're supposed to walk in the light and not in the darkness, how can we walk away? How can we be free from deliberate sin? Now, we've all been in this moment where uh, there's a, a situation of temptation. You're at that moral fork in the road. Everything in you is saying, 
go right. Uh, that's what the Spirit of God is saying inside of you. Go to the right. This is the right way. This is the right thing to do. Your conscience is saying this. Uh, you even acknowledge with your mind, this is the right thing to do. And yet we immediately plunge to the left in that fork of the road because that's what we feel like we want to do. That's what our desire says. That's deliberate sin. And we want to be free from deliberate sin for a couple of reasons. Number one, Choosing deliberate sin minimizes the sacrifice of Jesus. We are Christians. We are to love Jesus with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. And yet it is sin that caused him to suffer in the first place. It was sin that constituted his betrayal and arrest and his beatings and the crown of thorns on his head and the nails in his hands and in his feet. And so when we choose sin, we are choosing the very thing that caused a person that we are supposed to love more than anything in this world to suffer. We also want to walk away and be free from deliberate sin because it dulls our conscience. God has built into this world an ability for human beings to choose right from wrong. Looking at the news, I have no idea why he did this. In fact, I would say it was a pretty bad idea, amen, to give us freedom to choose right from wrong, and yet he, he did. But he didn't just give us the ability to choose right and wrong. He gave us the ability to decide and discern what is right and what is wrong. He gives us our conscience. The problem is when we choose deliberate sin over and over and over again, we're less likely to know that it is sin. It dulls our conscience. What used to seem wrong to us now just seems normal. Another reason that we want to be free from deliberate sin is that it quenches the work of the Holy Spirit. First Thessalonians 5.19 is a very clear command. Do not quench the Spirit of God. Jesus ascended into heaven, but He gave us the Holy Spirit of God as a gift to us so that we could experience the presence of Christ. The disciples, they got to experience the presence of Jesus. They were with Him. They could see Him. They could touch Him. They could listen to Him with their physical ears. But He made provision for us by giving us His Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, to live inside of each and every one of us so that we can know the presence of Christ. And the Holy Spirit... Uh, is the one who applies all that amazing stuff that you read in the scripture when you read the Bible and you're like, man, why, why is that not happening to me? I want this stuff to happen in my life. It's the Holy Spirit that brings that to pass, but he works with our cooperation. And when we harden our hearts, we quench his work and his activity. So it is very important for us today for those three reasons to want to be free from deliberate sin. And these verses are going to help us to walk that out. Verse 1. My little children, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. Now John is writing these verses as an old man and he's looking out for the churches there in the region of Ephesus that are under his care. Proverbs chapter 16 verse 31. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Gray hair is a crown of glory. It's one of my favorites because any verse that talks about hair in the Bible, I am for, right? Because it gives me something to pray for. I know that I can pray for hair because it's God's will to have gray hair here, apparently. Uh, Gray hair is a crown of glory. That's not how we treat our hair, is it, as we grow older? No. In fact, some of you ladies are spending a lot of money per month to make sure that this verse does not come to pass. And we don't look at getting older as a crown of glory, do we? No. Everything On our televisions, uh, those infomercials are primarily what? To help this verse not come to pass, to prevent us from getting older. But there is something holy and sacred about being old, and not just old, but being old in faith. 
There's something very special and sacred about a saint, even though they're not perfect, who has made it into old age. I love the book uh, by John Eldridge called Fathered by God, because in it he, he lists out the different stages that a man goes through. And the last stage uh, that a man or a woman goes through is the sage stage. Say that with me, sage stage. Now, it doesn't sound good for somebody to look at you and say, you are a sage. I mean, I'm feeling complimented already. And what he's, he's talking about there, and this is the perspective that John is writing from, a, a sage is a person who has a tremendous amount of, of wisdom. They just don't have the energy that they once did. So if you are getting older, and I'll let you decide what getting older means, I want you to know that you are honored here. The rest of our culture is trying to push you out to minimize your voice. And we want to maximize it. Because you have a wisdom that the rest of us don't have. When Amanda and I were first starting the church, when we were just beginning to have conversations about Bayou City Fellowship and what it would become, we were very careful in, in how we spoke to our friends, especially the friends that we wanted to come and be a part of our, our team. We never said, will you come and, and help us do this? We just said, this is what God is doing in us. And if, if you pray and you feel like God is doing this in you, then let's do it together. Um, we didn't ask anybody to come and be a part of it unless you were over 50. And then we begged the people over 50 to come. They didn't even have to be Christians. Um, <laughs> just, it was just an age requirement, right? Because we needed to say to them, and we did say to them, we have no idea if we're raising our children correctly. They're tiny. You know, who knows if I'm a good dad, but I can look at you and I know what a good dad or a good mom looks like. Um, we need you to help teach us what it means to be married for 25, 30, 35, 40, 45, 50 years. We don't know any of that. Um, we need you to teach us how to live on the provision that God has providing for us. All we've known is how to live based on what we want and we'll worry about the money later. We need the wisdom of those with gray hair. And so whether you have gray hair this morning or you're covering it up with some shade of coloring... I want you to know that you're honored here. You're not just welcome. You're not just marking time. But you're honored here and you have a voice. And it was with that voice that John is writing this letter. He's writing it to his little children. Those who are under his care. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So this is the goal. To sin less. To, to walk away from deliberate sin. But if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now that word advocate, it's a courtroom word. It's someone who represents another. Uh, it, they stand before the court and they present the case of another person. We see this in the Old Testament with the priests in uh, Leviticus, uh, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You can read about these priests because the big question in the first five books of the Old Testament is how is a holy God going to live among unholy people? Those two things don't make any sense together. And so God, in answering that question, instituted a, a a sacrificial system. And so these priests were raised up and consecrated and appointed to be advocates for the Israelites. So the Israelites were just like you and just like me. They were imperfect. They sinned. They made bad decisions. And, and so these priests would advocate 
for them by consistently making offerings and sacrifices on their behalf every morning from sun up to sundown. These sacrifices were happening. Well, as you read the scripture, that's the first five books of the, the, the Old Testament. As you read the scripture, you can tell that something better is coming. God is sending these prophets. He's sending his uh, his preachers to come and say something better is coming that these sacrifices they were just a foreshadowing of what is coming and then you get to the book of hebrews and hebrews is like jesus is what was coming jesus is the priest uh that is uh unique from those priests in the old testament because those priests in the old testament they would advocate for the israelites but they would come and they would live and they would serve and they would grow old and die and a new priest would have to be appointed in their place but jesus is the priest that lives forever and ever and ever and so he continually advocates for you. He will never need a replacement. He will never need a break. He's an eternal and forever high priest once and for all advocating for you. And the scripture says that he's advocating for you. He's speaking up for you at the right hand of God. So right now in the presence of God, Jesus can say about you, they're cool. They're with me. They believe in my name. So their sins are forgiven. I I know that they made that decision and it was terrible there's no there's no doubt about that but they believe in me so they're forgiven they have trusted in my name so they're clean they're in me father so they're with you we're preparing a place for them right now as we speak jesus is continually speaking up for you in heavenly places You know, one of the devastating effects of deliberate sin is the way that it isolates us. In fact, if you are really struggling with one of those sins that it's like you want to be free and you feel bad, but you just keep coming back to it over and over again, I would guess that you feel very alone in fighting that thing because that's what sin does. It isolates us. But this word advocate, it, it shows us that we're not alone. Jesus is speaking up for you right now, but this same word is used in John chapter 16 to describe the Holy Spirit. And so while you have Jesus speaking up for you in heavenly places, he has given you the Holy Spirit to advocate for you right here and right now. And that's why sometimes when you get to that moral fork in the road and and you think that one way is the direction you want to go. There's something, an alarm that goes off in you saying, no, go the other direction. The other direction is the correct direction. The other direction is the one that's in, in line with God's will. That is the Holy Spirit advocating for you. So none of us need to feel alone today in our battle against deliberate sin because you have Jesus advocating for you in the heavens and you have the Holy Spirit advocating for you in line with the way of Jesus right now. As we speak, and he says in verse two, he is the propitiation of our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, the reason he he broadens it to the sins of the whole world is because some of us are hearing about, okay, Jesus is speaking up for people in the heavenly places, but I doubt he's speaking up for me because I know what I have done. I know my past, I know my baggage, I know the stuff that I bring to the table, and there's no way that Jesus is gladly saying my name in the presence of the Father. But John cuts us off at the pass here because, listen, he's just saying, are you in the world right now? Are you a breathing person on planet Earth who has believed in the name of Jesus? Then you are included here. 
He is the propitiation for our sins. Now that word propitiation, it's theological. Now I'm fairly confident that you've used that word a bunch of times this week. You know, uh, hey, uh, do you mind picking up that propitiation? Because I'm, I'm cooking propitiation tonight for dinner. I mean, I know it's just a word that we regularly use. And, and some of us, we hear a theological word and we tune in. We like that. That's our gear. That's the way that we like to think. And others of us hear a theological word like that and we tune out. And we'll come back when it kind of gets to the normal words. And, uh, and, and I want you to know that you shouldn't tune out when we start using theological words. You shouldn't tune out when we start start talking about doctrines that come from the scripture. I was talking with one of our community group leaders this week, and he was telling me as he was teaching last week, he looked out on the, the group that he was leading. He was like, holy cow, man, I better be really careful about what I say, because if I'm not, if I say something wrong, these people are going to call me on it. And I thought, man, that's fantastic. You know, hopefully they don't call you on it like the first time. They let you mess up a few times, you know, because they're good and decent human beings. Uh, But I love knowing the fact that we have a lot of people here that if something true was not said, an alarm would go off in you and you would be able to tell what is true and what is not true. Now, there are a lot of different styles of churches. There's a lot of different denominations. There's a lot of different philosophical beliefs and interpretations about the scripture. And I want it to be our disposition as a church. Is when we look out at other churches, we look and say, are they bearing good fruit? Are they leading people to Jesus? Are they committed to God's glory? And then we would bless them even if it's different than us. But there's a danger in minimizing doctrine. There's a danger with just sticking to the essentials. Because we will lose the ability to tell what is right and what is wrong. And so if you are a person who kind of tunes out when any kind of theology is brought up, when words in the scripture like this are used, you want to tune in. Because without the word propitiation, this is not a very important gathering. It's this word and other words like it. These theological words that give a real weight and importance to what we're doing today. Now, propitiation in its most literal interpretation means to render favorable, to turn one towards another. This is why we need an advocate because uh, sin is an offense to God and the justice of God needs to be satisfied. Those priests in the Old Testament that I mentioned earlier, when people came to them with their sin, they, they couldn't just go, oh, don't worry about it. It's fine. No, a sacrifice had to be made because the justice of God had to be satisfied. And look what it says here. He is their propitiation. Jesus is the satisfaction of the justice of God. So he is the one who offers the sacrifice. He is the advocate. But he himself is the sacrifice. This is what um, no other religion on this planet is able to offer. A lot of different religions are able to offer up priests who can tell you that you have a problem. There are a lot of different advocates in this world. There are a lot of different ministers, a lot of different clergy, uh, and different world religions who will look at you and say, you have a problem and here is a solution. But there is only one where the advocate The person intervening for you said, you have a problem and a sacrifice needs to be made to fix your problem. But instead of asking you to sacrifice it, instead of you paying the cost, I will pay the cost for you. This is what separates Christianity from all other religions. Is Jesus was not just the advocate. He is the propitiation. 
He doesn't just offer the sacrifice. He is the sacrifice. And I know when we start thinking about God and his justice and why that had to be satisfied, it'd be very easy to to look and think and believe that God is just some cold and harsh and distant judge. And who wants to be a part of a religion where that's how God can be described? But we don't need to forget today that God's justice does have to be satisfied, but it was his own loving kindness that set all of these things in motion. It was his own loving kindness that appointed Jesus as your advocate. It was his own loving kindness that set events in motion that led to Jesus being your propitiation. So we need to put away any kind of thinking this morning that God is against you, that he's not for you, that he's dismissed you, that he's not looking out for you, that uh, he is angry at you and he is only ever angry at you. Because these words right here, advocate and propitiation, say that you are not alone in your fight against deliberate sin. The Father is for you and with you. The Son is for you and with you. And the Spirit of God is for you and with you as you fight off sin. Verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Now the word know is one of John's favorite words. He uses it all through his gospels, and he'll use it all the way through this, this epistle. Whoever says, uh, excuse me, and by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Now he's going to say the same thing uh, a couple of different ways in the next few verses. Verse 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. So what he's saying is if you and I claim today that, yes, I believe in Jesus and I believe that Jesus advocates for me in heavenly places. And I believe that Jesus is the sacrifice, the propitiation that has taken away my sin. I believe all that. And yet I'm going to continually and routinely choose deliberate sin. John says, Eh, wrong answer. You're a liar. Now, I would say it like, well, I'm not really sure if, uh, if you know, some of the things that you're thinking of, I would say it like that, but he, he doesn't make it gentle. He just says, no, you are a liar. It's like when I was about 10 years old, I had this library book at my school that I loved to check out. I would check it out like every other week. And, and eventually I didn't even need to read it anymore. I just had the whole thing memorized, but I still like to check it out. It was called The Kid Who Only Hit Homers. So it was, a, it was a true story about a kid who only ever hit home runs in his baseball game. And I would and I'd check it out and I'd read it. Well, one day I check it out for the millionth time and I just leave it in my backpack because I don't really need to read it. I know it so well. But when the day came to return it back to the school library. I couldn't find it anywhere. And so I turned my room upside down. I searched the whole house. I go outside and there it is laying outside. Now, I don't know how it got outside. I don't know when it got outside, but it had been out there for a long time and it was completely wet. And so the pages, like chunks of pages are coming out. I'm not talking about one or two pages. I'm talking about 40 at a time are coming out. The binding is all messed up, but uh, I got to turn it in because I'm horrified Uh, that I'm going to get in trouble if I don't turn it in. And I'm the kind of person and still am the kind of person that I don't mind getting in trouble when I know I've, when I intentionally did something wrong, but when I accidentally did something wrong, I don't want anybody to bother about it me about it. Amen. Right. And we should feel like we get away with it. And so I immediately go inside, I grab my mom's hairdryer and I start trying to blow the dry, uh, dry the, the book, um, you know, to get all of its moisture out and the wetness and and it works a little bit, not great. And now I got the problem. What am I going to do with these pages? Because they're in these huge chunks, they're falling out. And it didn't think to me just to stick them back in there. So I went and got masking tape and I started taping them in there. I was 10, so don't judge me. Um, and so I taped the book back together essentially and, and I close it and I'm, 
I think, good enough. Now, I've got to have a plan for turning it in because it's really obvious that something is messed up about this book. So my plan is when the kids go to stack the books to turn them in, I'm going to put mine way down at the bottom. So by the time the librarian gets to it, I will be long gone. You know what I'm saying? So we get into the library, start stacking our books. I make sure she's not looking. I put mine right underneath the other books. Plan, it's going according to plan right now. It's, it's perfect. And so now we're milling around looking for what book we're going to check out next. She calls me over. She says, what happened to this book? My first thought is, man, how, how did she know that I'm the one who checked it out? And then I, I remembered that little card. You remember the little card in the back of the book? You know, and you signed your name with one of those tiny golf pencils. And so she had just pulled out the card, and there my name was. And she says to me, she's holding it. It's wet and taped together. What happened to this book? Now, I had a strategy for how to get the book dry, and I had a strategy for how to turn it in. I had not thought about a strategy for for what I was going to say when she confronted me. And so I just stood there for a second and then like a lightning bolt of unholy inspiration, I said, I don't know, it was like that when I got it. (laughs) I'm thinking, man, this is brilliant because who knows what other random kid checked this book out in this school before me. It may take her a long time to unravel this mystery and I'll be long gone out of her presence by then. I might just drop out of the fourth grade altogether. And so she pulls out the card again, those cards, and and she reads the name right above mine, and he just happened to be in my class, and so she calls him over. She's like, what happened to this book? Now, this kid is horrified, and he's just pleading with her, I don't know, I turned that book in perfect condition, I don't know what happened to it, and so she stares back at me, and I just stare at her, just lock eyes. I don't give her any indication that I'm wavering on my story. I just think if I keep my mouth shut for long enough, this is going to work out for me. She looks back at him. I mean, he's almost in tears trying to convince her that he did not do this. And I'm just stone-faced. Eventually, I stand there looking at her in the eyes for so long and do not budge off my story or defend myself. I mean, I just mouth shut. That she just rolled her eyes and shrugged her shoulders in disgust and let us go. But this is what lying is, right? Lying is trying to pass something off. That's not true. And this is what John is saying. He's saying, listen, if you are running around proclaiming that you believe in Jesus and, oh, isn't Jesus good? And he's my advocate and he's my sacrifice. And we sing these songs that we're singing. If we're going around saying all this stuff and yet we are consistently choosing deliberate sin, he says, eh, wrong answer. He doesn't water it down for us. He just says, you're, you're lying. You're lying. And the truth is not in you. And then look at what he says. Verse five, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. Perfected means to, to make complete. It, it means that we would be completely consumed with the love of God and that love would bring us to a place of completion. It doesn't mean that you'll be perfect. It doesn't mean that you'll always make every decision right, that you'll never be tempted. It just means that your faith will be complete. It will be mature. It will be f- 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 uh, full. And I love that, that he, he says it's the love of God that does this. Because sometimes trying to evaluate my relationship with God and my fellowship, how am I doing? Do I feel close to God? Do I feel far away? Sometimes that feels like, you know, if you ask me if I'm a good husband, 
Because if you ask me today, do you believe that you're a good husband? I would probably be like, no. Right? Because now I'm thinking about, you know, like I could bring flowers home more often. I could do stuff and I could say stuff and I could write sweet notes. And you always hear about that terrible man who's always ruining it for the rest of us normal people, you know, like, you know, he's a hero and he rubs her feet every night willingly. And, you know, I mean, it's that guy. Uh, So you start thinking, well, I'm not doing enough. No, I'm a terrible husband. I think we do that same thing when we think about our fellowship with God. No, it's, I mean, it's fine. It's not good because we start thinking about all the things that we could do more. More reading of the Bible, more praying, more serving, more doing, more, more, more. But this verse keeps us from that despair because it's, it's not about what we do that brings us to that fullness and completion. It's the love of God. It's really the remedy if you keep choosing deliberate sin today is, is not to go and do more. It's can you receive more? Can you receive more of the love of God? Can you hear the truth that Jesus is advocating and speaking up for you right now in heavenly places out of love? Can you receive that so completely that it would bring you to a place where sin looks less appealing? Could you believe that Jesus loves you so much that he was willing to not only make a sacrifice on your behalf, but become a sacrifice on your behalf? Could you receive that love so full and so complete that would make that bad decision look even worse? Not gray, but definitely wrong. It's the love of God that brings us to that place of completion. In verse six, and whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walks. So this is just another way of saying, keep his commandments and keep his word, but it helps focus us because it's the way that he walked or lived the way that he lived. In my grandparents' house growing up, they had a plaque that had the 10 commandments on it. You've been to a place where you you see the Ten Commandments on the wall. I think this is really how we uh, believe and interpret what it means to be a Christian is that Jesus has a list of expectations, a list of commands for us, and he like hangs it in the break room. And whenever we go in there, which is like Sunday morning, we're reminded of what we're supposed to do. And then we go out and we're supposed to try to figure out how to to do all those things. But it helps us here to know that, simplify it. Yeah, we're keeping his commands, but we're keeping his commands and keeping his word by walking in the same way that he walked, by doing what it is that he does and did. I want you to turn quickly to John chapter 19, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19 tells a story of the rich young ruler. He was a lawyer, but a lawyer with extreme religious expertise. And he's going to come and he's going to ask Jesus, how he can have eternal life. And behold, a man came up uh, to him saying in verse 16, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me uh, about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 20, and the young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. 
And it says that he went away sorrowful because nothing will weigh down your soul and spirit like deliberately choosing to be misaligned to the will of Jesus. So if you hear something today that God has for you, a specific word of some change that needs to happen in you, but then you think about your life and you're like, well, I I don't really want to change if I'm being totally honest. You can leave today. You can go out to to your car in the parking lot. And I promise you, I think I can make this promise, that probably by the time you get out to the road, you will have forgotten what it was that God brought up for you to change. So you can ignore all of his commandments and still live a happy life. I mean, there are a lot of people living a happy life. You go on vacation, you can have a good time on vacation. You go to your kid's game, you can have a good time being proud of your kids. But there is a sorrow and a grief that hangs around the soul of Christians who do not walk in the way that Jesus walked. So what that means for us, and this is great news for us, is that if your life is aligned with Jesus's life, when you go on vacation, your vacation is exponentially better than if you were ignoring the will of Jesus and you went on vacation. It still may be fun, but not at the level of freedom that you would have if your life was walking in the way of Jesus. You can still go to your kid's baseball game and have a great time and ignore the will of Jesus. But if you go to your kid's baseball game and your life is in sync with the way of Jesus, you will enjoy it exponentially more because there will be a freedom on your soul and spirit that cannot be accounted for. And this is what uh, advantage we have in following Jesus. Everyone can live a happy life, but not everyone can live this kind of life where the joy is multiplied and the happiness is multiplied because of the freedom that comes. And that's why this young man goes away sorrowful because his life in that moment was now out of sync with Jesus's because Jesus's request to follow him put him at odds with his own life. I think that's what a lot of us are probably feeling today. Man, I really would walk in the steps of Jesus. As Peter puts it in one of his epistles, I would follow Jesus and I want to walk in the way that he walked, but I just don't feel like my life as it's currently constructed could handle that kind of change. I mean, if I really started following Jesus in that level of detail, I mean, I would just essentially live a different life and my life would now be at odds with what Jesus's will is. Uh, Last week, Amanda and I were watching this documentary about these pastors and they were going around the streets of Salt Lake City, Utah, and they were just striking up conversations with strangers, just total strangers uh, about Jesus. And they would offer to pray for these total strangers. I'm gonna be honest, I'm a pastor. And it was like super awkward, you know, because those conversations, they can go well and really weird and awkward in the same conversation. And so it was hard to watch. And so I said to Amanda, man, I just don't think that I could do that. I just don't think I have the personality to do that. Next day, I'm, I'm thinking about walking as Jesus walked in the same way that he, he did. And I was totally convicted because that's the wrong question to ask. Do I have the personality to do that? It's the wrong question. The right question is, is this the way that Jesus walked? You know, some of you may be like, well, I want to serve. I want to serve my city in Jesus' name. I want to serve the church in Jesus' name, but I just don't have time. I just don't have the bandwidth. It's the wrong question. The wrong question is, do I have time to serve Jesus? The right question is, is serving a part of the way that Jesus walked? Because if it is, then we have to serve. 
Maybe you're like, well, prayer is not really my gear. I'm a philosopher. I'm an intellectual person. And so prayer is just not my thing. It's the wrong question to ask. Is prayer my thing? The right question is, is prayer a part of walking in the way that Jesus walked? Because if it is, then you got to pray. Like I read the Bible and I don't really get anything about it. And so I just, you know, Sunday mornings are kind of my Bible time. It's the wrong question. The right question is, did Jesus prioritize the the word of God? Because if he did, then we have to too. Most of us have just been asking ourselves the wrong questions. Does this fit with my life? The right question is, does my, my life fit with the way of Jesus? If one thing has to bend today, it's not his will. It should be our will. And the great thing is, we're not walking in the steps of a distant deity who looks down on us with anger and contempt. We're not walking in the steps of an eternal taskmaster. We're not walking in the steps of a heavenly philosopher. We're walking in the steps of our advocate and our propitiation. We're walking in the steps of Jesus. And along with his Father and his Spirit, fight for us as we fight our way free from deliberate sin. Let's pray. God, we're thankful for your word. We just pray that it would continue to just rest on us today. That you would show us where we've taken steps that you have not taken. Where you've taken steps that that we've missed. We've been too slow or we've hesitated for too long. I pray that we would bring our lives in line with your movement and your way. Jesus, we're grateful that you advocate and you speak up for us now. Even as we're praying, you're speaking up for us. Holy Spirit, thank you for showing us, revealing to us, and urging us in the way of Jesus. pray you would continue to do that now. In his name we pray.